cultural contextualization is where we ask ourselves, in what way does the church actually take root in the soil in which it's been planted? Welcome to the Fresh Expressions podcast, season four. I'm calling it the holiday edition. I'm your host, Heather Delad. I'm a local pastor and a cultivator of Fresh Expressions, new faith communities that strive to reach new people in unexpected places. Season four will help you reimagine how you can leverage the fall season and the winter holidays to reinvigorate your church's relationship to your neighborhood and community. If you love this podcast, we hope you'll check out more. Head over to FX Connect, an online community of church leaders who are reaching new people in new places and access our entire library of practical and inspiring training materials. You can register for free today at fxconnectus.org. And if you've benefited from this podcast, you can help us spread the word. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or just share your favorite episode with a friend or on social media. Well, welcome back to the Fresh Expressions podcast. I am excited to share with you today a conversation with um, someone that I know will uh, share some things that will um, not only move us, but inspire us um, and excite us about what's to come. And that is uh, Michael Frost. Michael is going to be sharing a little bit about um, his newest book, his latest book called Mission is the Shape of Water. Uh, the subtitle of that is Learning from the Past to inform our role in the world today. So without further ado, Michael, would you introduce yourself to everyone for those who might not be familiar with your work? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. And thanks for having me uh, on on the podcast. Um, Yeah, I'm Michael Frost. I uh, teach at a seminary in Sydney, New South Wales, in Australia. Um, The seminary is called Morling College. Um, It's a theological college. I am the director of the missiology department, so I've been a missiologist or a studier of studier of Christian mission for 25 or something or other years these days. So uh, a lot of my life is in the classroom and in the seminary, but I'm also um, a church planter. I planted and led a dinner church for 15 or more years, I think, um, and I'm also a writer. So. Uh, along with Alan Hirsch, I've written a number of books around the kind of missional framework for thinking yeah. about the church in the West, uh, and have a lot of affinity with the uh, the goals and aims and the uh, the vision of Fresh Expressions. Right from way back in the early days when I first met the kind of British uh, founders of that that movement, so uh, we found each other and we were just both talking separately from each other, both saying the same kinds of things, yeah. and it was a real kind of um, coming together of like minds. So, yeah, I've been following what they and Fresh Expressions North America is doing, which uh, is, I think, awesome. You guys are doing great work, so I'm really thrilled to be on the podcast with you. Grateful to have you here to share about this. Um, I was sharing with Michael before we hit record just how his and Alan Hirsch's uh, shaping of things to come impacted me as a seminary, not so young seminary student. Um, and certainly I think is uh, just a, a, a small piece of the the reason that I'm sitting here today talking to you. So um, grateful for your work and um, was really, really um 
uh, drawn in to what you share in your newest book, uh, the, uh, the Mission is the Shape of Water, and this whole idea of, of drawing from the past uh, to inform our role uh, moving forward as the church, the mission of the church in the future um, and today. And, um, and, and, and really what I thought about was, you know, it's so really counter to what we see in the world around us today in that, you know, everything is about innovation and innovating and the newest, latest, um, you know, 10.0 version of whatever. So what led you to write a book that really looks to the past uh, to lead and guide us forward? Where, where, what, 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 what precipitated this? Um, well, put simply, what precipitated was I teach a subject at the college where I teach called the History of Christian Mission. Um, uh, it's one of our missiology units, and it became a really popular uh, subject. Um, and I think chiefly because a lot of students were choosing it, and not because they had a real interest in, in the history of mission, but because they didn't know anything about the history of Christian mission. And they'd heard that it was a good class. It's become a really popular class at the school where I teach. And I just watched students' eyes light up and their kind of brains explode as they discovered, you know, what has happened in the world of Christian mission throughout the last 2,000 years. And, in fact, one of the things that students will, will regularly tell me is that even though, as you just said in that question, that we often are now thinking about the new thing and pressing into innovation yeah. and wanting to explore new and creative ventures that haven't been tried before, we still have a pretty limited imagination about what those things might be. And mm-hmm. I'm not suggesting that we go back to the past. Uh, you've read the book, Heather, so you know that I'm not saying let's get back to the days when we did this right. or the days when we did that. But, in fact, when you look at the sweep of history and the way in which God has led the church beyond itself out into the world, what it, what it does is it broadens our imaginations. It broadens our mm-hmm. thinking about what, A, what mission is and, B, what culture might be like, and it frees us from a pretty narrow band of innovation, if I can put it that way. Um, mm-hmm. Most students realize, oh, okay, it's one of these things I thought was incredibly new and fresh. Actually, the church tried that 200 years ago, or the church was doing that 500 years ago, for example. Yeah. Or alternatively, wow, what the church was doing a thousand years ago, I've never even considered that you know that might be something we might do today. So I, I think that what what studying history does is. Um, it just gives us a kind of a, a healthier imagination, and for us as Christians, a healthier Christian imagination. Now, I do know that it's an uphill battle trying to convince people that studying history is an exciting thing <laughs> ever. Um, I know lots of people are like, oh, I left history back in high school and I didn't kind of return. <laughs> but in effect, I mean, a number of people have said to me, one of the things about this book is it's just full of stories of people yeah. like me doing extraordinary things and in some cases unexpected things in all sorts of parts of the world. And so it's incredibly um, hope-filled book. I had one person say to me, I don't really dig history that much, but I read that book and when I finished, I felt really hopeful about the future of the church. And I feel like there's a lot of hopelessness about the Mm. future of the church around today. And 
studying our history makes us realise, oh, okay, we aren't on the precipice of going away or dying. This isn't <laughs> the end of the Christian era. Like they've said that about the Christian era many times before. But, in fact, the church continues to move forward uh, into the future that God intends for us. So, yeah, I hope what it really does, Heather, is just give people hope and, and yes. a greater sense of, of uh, optimism and, and vision for the future. Well, what I what I I mean, I, I I confess that though I knew many of the stories, there were some that I had no idea about that were uh, incredibly impactful. And and you say something that um, is really resonating with me in regard to um, you know, as as the spirit does, the spirit is speaking to many different people, and the movements are moving in many different ways across the world on toward the same aim. But um, I'm thinking of like tradition innovation and Greg Jones and some of the work that he's done around that, and really capturing the best parts of our inheritance, the best parts of our past, and what do those look like? I mean, that's really what the Fresh Expressions movement is all about. Yeah, you know, that Anglican the, the the Declaration of Assent to proclaim the faith afresh for each yeah. generation and. Context is absolutely tantamount to that happening. So you you list across ten chapters, really ten things that shape and give shape to the mission, have given shape to the mission, um, God's mission for the church. Um, is there anything in particular you lay out this this beautiful trajectory of of history and how um, there are different pieces that have anchored that that um, really bear witness to the possibilities for today. Was there any chapter that you were most excited about or more excited about or maybe felt a little more tedious even? Um, that's a good question. I think um, <laughs> it's certainly the, the chapter about a 19th century mission, the 1800s, which mm. maybe not so much a current generation but a previous generation were very inspired by you know, um, Hudson Taylor and, and David Livingston and William Carey and all those kind of guys. And yes. um, in, in writing that chapter and the, those guys' obsession with translation and publishing, and I, I call that chapter the wordsmithing era where right. words take on this incredible sense of meaning. And um, I found that a freeing chapter in the sense that, you know, no, we don't have to get back to what those guys did because they yes. did the translation work. They 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 planted the seed in, in places like Burma and India and China and, and Southern Africa and places like that. And that we don't have to slavishly keep reinventing this. That work was done. Rather, what we need to do is to ask ourselves, what's happening now in India or, or China or, or Burma or Southern India? And in what ways might the church that are the inheritors of those famous missionaries work, what do those churches today teach us? And I've been uh, fascinated to discover like the, the extraordinary growth and, um, and innovation, but uh, incredible uh, dynamism and, and missional innovation of the church in Africa and parts of India, not all of India, parts of India and, uh, and Southeast Asia. And so I found that chapter freeing because I've often heard so many people saying, oh, we need to get back to these, do what those guys did, lots of preaching, lots of translation, lots of word-based um, yeah. mission. But th that was done in a sense. And one of the stories I love telling from that era is the story of Alice Seely Harris who went to the edge of the Congo to do just that, to translate, to teach the Bible, to do conversion mission 
Um, mm-hmm. You see photos of her. She had a white linen dress and she's in the middle of the jungle teaching, you know, little black African kids uh, the Bible. But she arrived at a time when there was an absolute uh, uh, human rights travesty going on. The Belgian Congo was being overseen by a private army of the King of of Belgium, King Leopold, and he was extracting huge amounts of of rubber in particular, and also ivory and uh, and, and other uh, products for his own benefit. It was not a Belgian government innovation. It was his own private venture. He turned the whole of the the Congo Basin into a concentration camp. Uh, and the army that oversaw that would, if you didn't deliver the uh, enough of rubber, if your your rubber quota wasn't met, you paid for it by having a hand or an arm severed right. to make up the weight. Uh, there are all sorts of stories of of, of public drownings, of, uh, of of public rape and uh, violence and murder. So she arrives at the edge of the Belgian Congo to teach the Bible. And when she gets there, she discovers she's on the edge of like a human rights violation. It's one of the worst atrocities of the 20th century, but so yeah. few people know about it. So what does she do? She ends up sneaking through the jungle into the Congo and photographing mutilated Congolese and taking down their stories. She takes hundreds and hundreds of photos of handless and armless and uh, scarred young men and women takes down their stories, and then she goes on a speaking tour of the UK and the US um, and effectively in like three or four years turns those mm-hmm. nations against what was going on and effectively the pressure it places on the, the Belgian government mm-hmm. was such that they dismantle the Bel- Belgian Congo and um, turn it into a, 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 a kind of a freer colony. And they end the atrocities. Now, the reason I tell you that story, and I really like that story, Heather, is she goes with one shape in mind, which is I'm going to translate the Bible, I'm going to teach the Bible, I'm going to run a church. Perfectly legitimate and good things to want to go and to do. But the context throws up to her a a human rights tragedy, Mm -hmm. atrocity. Mm -hmm. And so she's her mission is reshaped in that context to become a human rights advocate. In fact, today, Alice Healy, Seely Harris is known uh, in the, the human rights world as one of the pioneer human rights advocates. She's she's quite famous. But, but she's not very well known as a Christian missionary, which is in fact what she was doing. And her motivation for doing what she did was because she saw that this was the mission of God, to set people free from oppression right. and violence and control. Another similar story is one about an Australian man who in the 20th century grew up on a market garden. His parents were Italian. They taught him you know, to, to farm. He ended up doing a degree in agriculture, and then he felt a call to Christian mission, went to Bible college, then went to the Najid Delta in Western Africa, again to do fairly typical uh, conversionist missionary work, Bible teaching and church leadership and the like. And what he discovered was that the whole of the Delta had been denuded of trees. It was a wasteland now. It was on the edge of the Sahara, but it was virtually a desert now itself. And you can't, I don't know much about farming, Heather, but you can't grow crops without trees. Like if you don't have shade and if you don't have tree roots stabilizing the earth, you can't grow crops. So they're starving to death. And whenever they tried to plant trees, they were just planting little seedling-type trees which would then die in the sun. And so he's an agriculturalist, and when he gets there, he says, do you know that you've got a whole forest underground right now? All the tree roots from all those trees that you cut down are still 
under the ground. And he yeah. teaches them how to dig into the soil and how to, to strike the root and to start a new seedling and to grow trees from the roots underground. And in hmm. effect, I can't remember now the figures, but he has effectively reforested Forested, yeah. the Niger Delta by teaching Africans to do this. And has and farms have now kind of been able to prosper. And he has literally, one, one man, has lifted thousands and thousands of families out of poverty. Now, he didn't go there to do that, Heather. Like, he went there to do right. one shape of mission. The right. context threw up a particular challenge, and he shaped his ministry in an alternative way. And interestingly, yeah. I should say his name, Tony Ronaldo is his name. I mentioned Alice Seely Harris. I didn't mention Tony's name. But interestingly, there have been a number in the mission um, society world in Australia who have asked, well, is that Christian mission? Is that really missionary Mm. work? He was sent Mm. there to evangelise and what have you. And so so he's had to kind of have to defend his ministry in lots of respects. And I, I would say, of course, Christian mission does include evangelism and proclaiming the gospel and speaking about Jesus and letting people know what this kingdom is like and who the king of that kingdom is like and how to come into that kingdom. Totally, I agree with all of that. I think Tony would agree with that, and I'm pretty sure Alice Harris would agree with that. But that's not to say that kingdom work doesn't also include uh, freeing people from oppression and lifting people out of poverty. Um, I only preached yesterday uh, in, mm. in a church here in Australia uh, from Isaiah 61, Isaiah 61, as Americans say. <laughs> I, um, I like it better the way you say it. <laughs> uh, which was a passage that Jesus appropriates for himself, you know, speaking about the year of the Lord's favour, which includes, mm. you know, release of the captives, the binding of the brokenhearted and, and the good news to the poor. So I don't think we have to debate this, that, you know, it's either conversionists or it's right. either evangelism or it's, social justice or social action. That's one of the shapes I think we're discovering in this day and age is that that old bifurcation of the mission of the yes, church. They're inextricably has, linked together. Yes, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I, two stories, just quickly, the point of telling those two stories is to say they're two examples of people who went with a particular shape in mission, yes. but the context reshaped it for them. And that's the whole kind of idea behind the book, really. Well, I'm really, I mean, that is something that we continue to wrestle with. I mean, those are our defaults, I think, um, in the inherited church that we do tend to default to, I have this thing that I'm going to go do, or this idea, or, you know, maybe even this particular assignment. And I come with all of my ideas, and I don't necessarily take the time to understand the context to listen to be present to you know uh, determine what are the what are the values what are the where is god working and how can i join god instead of you know having this grandiose idea um which you know in this particular chapter is really kind of you know mission shaped by imperialism as you as you said um rather than you know rather than small acts uh, very large acts, but small acts of obedience into what's right in front of you. And, you know, what does it look like to love people like God loves people? And, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, she could have, she could have decided that she was going to, you know, you know, just continue to barrel through and do what it was that she thought she was there to do, or she could respond to what she saw in front of her. Right. And, and I mean, and the same goes for, uh, for Tony as well. So, um, was in there both a- cases, I was just going to say, in both cases, technology 
is a factor as well. I mean, she yes. had a personal camera. I mean, she went there in 1898, I think it was, like right at the turn of the century, really early for a person to have a, a personal camera. But the fact that she had that at her disposal, then she could photograph the atrocities and then and then show people in the US and the UK. And that was, that was I mean, today that's standard missionary and advocacy uh, 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 right. work, isn't it? But back then that tiny little that little thing that someone gave her as she left actually opened up this opportunity right. for mission. And same with Tony Ronaldo. Like it was his background in, in, in agriculture that actually was able to mm-hmm. allow him to do the work that he did. And so, yeah, I think we have to take into account the context actually is important in the shaping of mission. It oughtn't to, mm-hmm. to control mission. It oughtn't to tell us what the gospel is as if it right. could. We're not just giving people what they want in, in that sense. It's not marketing, but the context, the people to whom God has sent us are, are our actual missionary partners, even yes. though they may not be conscious of that. Uh, yes, they, are, yeah. they are raising questions or presenting problems um, or, or uh, expressing hopes or desires or fears that we believe the gospel has a response to. And so, yeah, that together with ingenuity and a little bit of technology and a strong sense of optimism about what God can do, yeah, God does amazing things through people. So, yeah, pr- pr- a call to work beyond the printed page, really, of the era. And so, you know, TikTok and Instagram reels, I don't know. I mean, sure, sure. <laughs> I mean, people are living there for sure. To be sure, was there was there a chapter that um, that was especially challenging for you to write? Well, yeah, I did write about the early Benedictines and the Jesuits and the Franciscans, all of which were missionary um, orders uh, within the within the church prior to the, um, the to the Reformation. And yeah, I had to write about their vision and their goals and some of the marvellous things that they did, also being conscious that much later the Jesuits do some pretty bad things when it comes to mm. in the name of Christian mission. So trying to kind of give them their due about certainly yeah. their, their, their beginnings and their founders and their initial vision and their the, the 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 vision of life for the for for those in that monastic order are very inspiring but as i said later you'll find some of them uh, and in particular the jesuits because of their um obsession with just converting everybody what they end up doing is very abusive and controlling uh, much later in their history so yeah trying to tell the whole story i think is one of the difficult things too you don't want to uh, some people are pretty keen to to tell us how terrible christians have been and christians Mm -hmm. you know they 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 are all colonialists and they destroy culture and they they they're cruel and vicious and they they separated children from their families and there are lots of stories you can find about that and and that's right. true but by the same token actually christian missionaries f- for the most part were genuine people full of the love of god humbly wanting to serve the contexts in which they found themselves and in some cases they found themselves in the midst of really tricky uh, situations between uh, Western colonial force and local indigenous communities. Right. And I tell a few stories in there about Christian missionaries who actually stood in that breach, who actually were, mm-hmm. were go-between people, who spoke to the colonial forces on behalf of indigenous people and then right. and then uh, 
the reverse. In fact, there are a few countries like Lesotho and places like that are only nations today because uh, Western missionaries, in that case uh, French missionaries, uh, negotiated the opportunity for them to have freedom of their own their own place. I really appreciated your addressing that um, uh, sentiment. Really, I think oftentimes that we 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 perceive you know, Western Christian missionaries to have, you know, tried to colonialize everything and conquer everything. And this, this whole idea of, of humility and, um, uh, a sense of grace that you, you call us to in, um, the, the final chapter, but also I think the challenges that, that, um, that, that uh, approaching mission with this whole, uh, uh, conquering type mentality can create like these false ecosystems where that are not sustainable that 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 do lead us toward like this syncretism and um you know and 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 uh, uh, a lot of the the harm that's been done as well as far as the church and mission over over the centuries but um so the the final chapter you you get to unearthing and um and really kind of cultivating that deeper sense of humility and grace. And, um, and you say to show how Jesus's life and message relates to things such as humility in the face of opposition, respect for the contributions of women, people of color and new immigrants and an ethic that protects the poor and the vulnerable. Um, it is a, it's a call, um, of sorts, I, I believe to the church for the age in which we're living and the things that seem to be, um, you know, really kind of bumping up against, or maybe on the fringe of, of, um, of our society that are, that are bumping up against, um, kind of our, our norms that we have, um, carried forward with us, but it's a call also to, um, to democratize the church, to move away from um, these ideas of hierarchical um, leadership that we have carried with us for so long and, um, and lean more into these movements like the micro church movements and the dinner church movements and the things that really, um, really embrace and embody um, really what we've been moving toward in the entire book, all of these elements um, as far as Christian mission is concerned. <clears throat> yeah, I think that um, uh, we have to recognize, uh, as many Christians do, that there is, uh, we're in, a, in the context of a, a post-Christian or post-Christendom kind of world, and that the, the church is not viewed terribly well by many people, that we do feel as though we're losing our status as the kind of preferred right. religion in, in society. Um, and there's a lot of awareness of all the kind of religious freedoms that the church has had kind of being eked away or taken away. So there's a real mm. sense like, well, we're under attack, like we're, we're, we're being marginalized. Mm. But I think we need to have better perspective on this to recognize that actually we come with hundreds and hundreds of years of political and cultural and social power at our backs. Now, you might not feel like you've got a lot of power in your little church in Georgia or wherever you might mm -hmm. be. You might feel as though, oh, our church is smaller this year than it was last year, and we don't feel like we're a very powerful kind of institution. But spoken of as a whole, the church does come with a lot of power at its back. We've kind of 
and we've used it and we've abused it at times yeah. and uh, and now people are saying you oughtn't to have that same level of power. And I think that we have to be conscious of the fact that when we try to speak up or uh, when we try to talk about our values or about our faith or about Jesus, we have to be conscious that in our context, in a post-Christian West, people can't hear that without hearing it through the lens of mm. that kind of political, social, and economic power that the church has. So early in the book, I tell stories about early missionaries, Celtic missionaries, who would go and would, like, proclaim boldly and they would tear down idols and they would uh, call people to freedom in the gospel and, and, and people responded to them. And one of the things I say in that chapter is we can't do that today because what they were doing was they were going as marginal people. Right, there was right. no church in those contexts. And they right. were going and setting people free from the oppression of superstition and fear and the power of Druids and priests and people like that. So they were a grassroots freedom yeah. movement when they came into those contexts. Now we can't if we just did that today, right? We're not perceived that way. We're seen as a very powerful and wealthy organization and an mm -hmm. organization which has abused its power and its wealth. Mm -hmm. And so we simply have to recognize there's no returning back to those days. And by the same token, there's no point in us trying to um, shore up whatever the kind of eking power that we have uh, drifting away from us. We do have to recover yeah. this idea of humbly mm. recognising our more marginal status. We're not that marginal, but the increasingly marginal status. Yes. And start to demonstrate what it looks like to be a grassroots movement of love and justice and compassion and to build communities in which we experience the very presence of God, where we create new a new form of family, a redeemed society of persons, where we work for justice and reconciliation and we're, we're deeply committed to, uh, to bringing healing and joy to our world. Now, I think in that respect, you can do those kinds of things without lots of money or power or social kudos. In fact, I think the best examples of those happen around tables or yes. uh, in small meeting places where kind of really genuine neighbours come together and bring hope to an increasingly hopeless kind of world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, uh, the, the wrestling with the... The awareness that we don't come from a place of being marginalized, although we, you know, we we tend to think we are uh, more yeah. and more in the West, um, I think is is there's a lot to be gained in that regard, for sure. You, you start the book um, by saying that the purpose of the book is to expand imagination, help develop healthier Christian memory. And you certainly did that for me in reading this, um, inspiring you to action, lessening your ambition to become a hero. I think we've kind of talked around that a little bit, um, yeah. increasing and increasing our belief that God wants to partner with you in mission. So my question is, that being said, um, I'm curious, what would evidence be that you have accomplished that with this book? What would the evidence of your accomplishing that be? Wow, well, that's a great question. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, often when a when an author writes a book, the evidence that it's done well is people buy it and they like buy it. it. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> buy it, quote it, share it. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but no, that's a great question. What were the evidence that actually people had that broader Christian memory, mm. that healthier Christian memory? Um, I yeah, I would just like to see a movement of Christians being less concerned about having to shore up their reputa- the reputation of the church or having to maintain the institutional expressions of church and yeah. being freed to um, move out as as like water. Like also at the beginning of that book I talk about the, the Hong Kong uh, uh, anti-communist movement, which takes the slogan, Be Water, which is that mm. if millions of us kind of sort of sweep out into the streets, that actually, like water, we can kind of shift and change and crash yeah. and move and, and then and drain away and come back again. And I would love to see the church in the West see itself in that respect. Yeah, we do have power. We do have buildings. We do have property. We do have all those sorts of things. Mm. We are conscious of how we are starting to lose some of our privilege in, in our society. But I would love to see uh, the emergence of um of a whole lot of new, well, I'll, I'll call it a whole bunch of new fresh expressions of what the yes. church might look like, uh, uh, whether they're part of the fresh expressions movement or not. But that's what the thing I love about you guys is that um, that you're wanting to create kind of scaffolding and support and training and nurture and inspiration to people who are willing to or wanting to go out and to do kind of non-institutional, non-organized Mm-hmm. If you're sick of organized religion, try disorganized religion. Go, <laughs> yeah, yeah. go yeah. work something around a table. Um, uh, go mm-hmm. dream of the various ways church could could be without it having to be the way it's been for the last 50 years. That's the other thing I'd say, Heather, for a lot of people when they think about history, they only go back 50 yes. or so years. Um, yes. And the church has not always been the way it is now anyway. So you can be free to innovate and not necessarily be beholden to the existing structure. Hmm. Well, I really hear you. You know, I mean, it's 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 we are the same heart of the same heart in that, you know, the desire of the Fresh Expressions movement is really the deploying of the priesthood of believers into the everyday places and spaces to um, to, to to incarnational mission and withness with our, our loving God and loving neighbor and and um the the beauty of that the mutuality of that is what it brings back to the inherited church as we yeah. embrace those forms of church and really you know really again the desire of our heart is that um, you you say at the beginning um, and kind of choosing this this title uh, which made me very curious to begin with um, mission is the shape of water but if the shape of water is determined by the container that it is in and the shape of mission is determined by its context. I'm curious um, what you might tell our listeners are some practical ways we can begin to develop some of that cultural competency and uh, critical contextualization of what what we, what it is that we are doing as a church. Yeah. I'd say the first thing is to uh, know the difference between cultural adaptation and uh, mm. A cultural contextualization, the term you just used. So cultural adaptation, I think, is something a lot of churches have tried. I mean, particularly back in the day uh, where it was like, oh, okay, people don't like organ music and hymns, let's bring in 
pop music and bands and you know, drums yeah. and guitars. That's cultural adaptation. That's like, what does our culture want or need? Oh, they want drug proofing classes, you know, for, for parents and their teens, or oh, they want a kind of a, a women's ministry that does this or that. That's cultural adaptation. You're looking at kind of what people might want and you're kind of giving them. And a lot of the church growth movement, which did a lot of cultural adaptation, was very influenced by kind of marketing theory. And so giving the people what they want, find out what they like, uh, and then connect the gospel to that and give it to them. Now, that's one thing. But yes. cultural contextualization is a much more complex thing. It's where we mm-hmm. ask ourselves, in what way does the church actually take root in the soil in which it's been planted? I mean, how is it intrinsically or distinctly of this particular place? So an yeah. example uh, from history would be when Hudson Taylor went to China uh, he dyed his hair black, he grew a pigtail, he wore Chinese traditional dress, he ate Chinese food. No one thought he was Chinese. They knew he was a British missionary, but he was adapting to the context. It's a way of saying, well, you know, I respect your culture. And now, of course, the descendants of those churches have to figure out what does it mean to be a Chinese Christian in a communist world, to actually understand mm. the worldview of communist China uh, or a particular region of China, uh, and to allow the gospel itself to take root in that place and give rise to a distinctly or peculiarly Chinese church. This is much more a challenge, I guess, in some respects, say, for places like India, where the British came and they planted British churches and they ran them, they ran hospitals and schools, and then eventually they would uh, start to staff those programs with Indians. So you had Indian pastors, Indian school teachers and Indian preachers, but the structure was still British. So that when in the 1930s and 40s as an independence movement and eventually when in 1948 India gains independence, of course there's this sense within India, throw out everything that is English, like we're not that anymore. Right. And that led Christians to have to ask themselves, right, okay, wait, we inherited this church from the British. We're still Christian. We want to be Christian. But are we English Indian Christian or are we actually Indian Christian? What does that look like? And so it's actually people in those parts of the world, in Southern Africa and India and places like that, that have really helped us to explore what would it look like if the church was distinctly and peculiarly Indian. Now, if we translate that into our contexts, uh, we would say, well, we've inherited uh, a particular form of church. Um, various denominations had different histories as to how you got the kind of church you ended up with. We now need to ask ourselves, rather than just adapting to the newness of musical styles or, you know, we're going to use kind of the announcements are going to be a video instead of somebody out the front or they're all (laughs) cultural adaptations. But what would it look like if we recognise that in this particular place, Culture has certain trends or desires. It tells itself certain stories. It has certain narratives mm. that helps make sense of who it is. There are certain fears and idols that shape our culture and our context. What would it look like if the gospel attended to those issues? And so critical contextualization means a deep exegesis or study of the culture alongside yeah. an equally deep exegesis of the scriptures in order to see where the hermeneutical bridges are between those two things. And so learning to read culture, not just 
like like culture with a big capital C, but actually by speaking yes. to neighbours, spending time on the street with people, with yeah. businesses, at schools, with school principals, with the local police force, like talk to people who are serving right. the neighbourhood in order to hear what are the hopes, the fears, the desires, the strengths of this particular context. And so, yeah, uh, step beyond adaptation into kind of deep cultural mm-hmm. awareness is what I would say. And it, it is a it is a it is a slow work. It is not, right. yeah. Right. And I think that's that's you know really challenging to people that are to a people that are in this state of you know wanting kind of a self preservation, right? Like we have to have the quick fix. We have to make something, you know, versus yeah. you know the slow work of of listening and paying attention and spending time with and living with and yeah. you know sharing life with that is um very very different and if someone from the u.s went to france or to uh to germany or to you know kenya as a missionary we would expect that they would do all that slow kind of work but i actually right. seen, uh, i've seen american pastors and american missionaries come to australia and we're very similar. We speak English. We're kind of a Western liberal democracy. Uh, there are a lot of commonalities here. And I've seen so many Americans get tripped up by it because they think, well, mm. I'm not in Kenya or Germany or France. Uh, I belong here. It's easy. Let's, let's get started. And then they discover the subtle differences between even yes. Western liberal democracies are really deep and it, it's even there it takes significant amount of work. So, of course, the same thing would be the case if you went from North Carolina to, to Washington State or from California to Wisconsin. Sure. I mean, you know, you're entering into a different cultural context and you need to mm-hmm. learn the subtleties and the, the kind of the deep rivers uh, of those kinds of places. It, as you say, it's not something that can happen overnight. No, no, no. And you, you really spoke to the, the, you also spoke to the, the gift and yet complexity of our increasingly globalized mobile uh, society that we are in as well. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, you know, being, being in a place, at least in this, in this particular state, that is one of the most diverse um, counties in the Southeast, um, it is, it is quite complex when all of these different, um, cultures kind of come together. Some that are, um, you know, uh, immigrants to this country and, and, and there, and also, you know, children of immigrants. So, um, very, very different and definitely requires our, um, listening to God and listening for the spirit and, um, that slow work. Uh, that is that is necessary. Mike, have you have you not said something that you feel like needs to be said or shared with um, with our listeners today? Uh, I don't know about that, but one thing you were, as you were just talking, one thing that popped to mind was I was in Georgia years ago, and I met these two older gentlemen who were. They didn't tell me that they were very wealthy, but they they gave the impression that they were very wealthy retired men, and they loved the Lord and they wanted to kind of serve people in their retirement. And so they started trying to run this program or run that or start this thing or launch that. And they said uh, to me, none of that kind of really worked. We were trying to kind of connect uh, in particular with some Burmese refugees that were in our city and we thought we'd help run this program or do that. I can't remember what initiatives they were, were launching. 
until they said, we come up with this idea. Like, we don't know how to cook. We don't even know how to cook American food, they said, but let alone kind of Burmese food. So we went to the Burmese community and said, would you teach us how to cook uh, Burmese mm. food? Mm. And and mm. So in the end, they've now got a whole bunch of their, their, their mates that come along and they learn how to cook Burmese food. And, of course, they look ridiculous while they're doing it. And all the Burmese laugh at them because they don't cut things right or they don't That's understand. humility, yeah. And that's humility, exactly. And they said as soon as we did that, we suddenly started developing really kind of deep connections with the Burmese and then that yes. opened up all kinds of ministry opportunities. So sometimes I feel like, you know, because we are wealthy, we do have energy and aut- autonomy and we're creative people, it's like, let's go start this, let's go do that. But maybe if you just yeah. kind of got on your knees and submitted yourself to a particular community, what you would discover, yes. that would actually kind of tap the vein into which you could then flow mm-hmm. with all sorts of um, mission mm-hmm. opportunities. That's gold. That's gold. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mike. Uh, thank you for the conversation. The book is The Mission. Mission is the Shape of Water, and it is available. I looked this afternoon. It's available all the places that you would normally find books. Um, I saw it on Amazon. It's on Kindle. I'm sure it's it's available at your local bookseller as well, um, if those even exist anymore, anywhere. <laughs> uh, but I would love for, for you to... <laughs> I hope they do too. I, there's nothing like an actual physical book. Um, but would you would you do us the honor of of praying over our listeners as we close out the conversation today? I will. And thank you. Uh, first, before I do, thank you for this opportunity. It's really uh, helpful to get the word out about the book. And I really do hope that when people read the book, they do feel incredibly hopeful and optimistic about the future of the, the mission of God's people. So let's pray. Amen. <laughs> Father, I pray for listeners to this podcast and to supporters and uh, and staff members at uh, Fresh Expressions that uh, you would continue to fill them with hope and optimism, that you'd continue to remind them of the beauty of your kingdom as it's unfurling throughout this world, a kingdom of joy and peace, uh, of healing, of your peculiar and, and beautiful intimate presence, uh, a, a kingdom which fashions us into a new kind of society and makes us a new kind of person. Help us at, at the centre of all of that to, to alert people to that kingdom and to alert people to the king that sits at the centre of that, the one who makes it possible, mm-hmm. our friend, uh, our saviour, our rock, our redeemer, Jesus. Lord, uh, bless us with optimism and hope and energy and excitement mm-hmm. in the days that are ahead for the church across the West in this increasingly fraught and difficult post-Christian world. Amen. Fresh Expressions is a worldwide movement of everyday missionaries who want to see churches thrive in the places we live, work, eat, and play by leveraging the creativity and endurance of the inherited church. To learn a simple five-phase process for starting a new expression of church, go to freshexpressions.com backslash how to start. Want to learn more from the Fresh Expressions team? 
Head over to freshexpressions.com slash training to learn ways we can work together to provide coaching, training, and inspiration for your church or organization. You can also get more resources like this on FX Connect, an online community full of other church leaders passionate about reaching new people in new places. Access our entire library of practical and inspiring training materials and connect with other church leaders at fxconnectus.org. Season four of the Fresh Expressions podcast is hosted by me, Heather Jalad. It's edited by Joel Limbaum and produced by Jeanette Statz, Kathleen Blackie, and Chris Morton. Our national director is Dr. Christopher Backert. If you have learned something or been encouraged by this podcast, please help us spread the word. You can give us a review on Apple Music or Spotify and share this episode on social media. Now, may God bless you in your work for the kingdom.